Well, hey, friends, welcome to the Better Bible Reading Podcast with Kevin Morris with you for yet another episode this year, focusing in on making the most of our Bible reading. Of course, that's what the topic is every year on this podcast, but I've been trying to be a little more strategic in the things that we talk about this year to try to bring everything together in a common theme. That common theme this year so far has been active reading and making the most of reading our Bibles, doing the best with what we can with the time that we have, making adjustments as needed, and doing what we can to improve. One of the ways that we can do that uh, has been, as I've talked about this year, uh, finding Bibles to write uh, to write in, to highlight, to underline. Uh, I've had several Bible reviews on the YouTube channel this year trying to help all of you get a vision, get an idea for the kind of things that I'm talking about. Uh, but every now and then, we want to take a step back and think of some other ways uh, that we might be able to improve on our Bible reading. Not just how often we do it, but how much we enjoy it, what it means to us. And that necessarily means that we want to think about some people that can help us along the way. Now, I'm not just thinking about contemporary people. I'm thinking about all the way back to the biblical writers themselves. How Christian authors can help us or hurt our Bible readings. And that really brings me to the question on this episode of how we should go about choosing what Christian authors we read. Uh, I don't think that I have to be the one to update you on the fact that there are so many options today when it comes to choosing Christian authors. Uh, We live in the year 2022 at the time of this episode recording. Uh, We have a long history, century after century, of Christian authors, uh, some self-proclaimed, some tried and true. And the kind of concentrated amount of writing uh, in the last several centuries, and especially with the, the dawn of modern technology and electronic writing and the ability to self-publish, the floodgates have really opened when it comes to finding uh, Christian literature. And really, anybody can claim that what they're writing is Christian literature. It is a Christian author writing a Christian book to help you. And so there's so many things that we have to think about when it comes to choosing what we read, and we do have to be selective. I think about what Solomon says at the end of Ecclesiastes about the warning that uh, of the writing of many books, there will be no end. Uh, even back during his day, he said there were uh, way more options than there were uh, than there was time to read. And he's encouraging us not to get trapped up in this endless cycle of trying to read, trying to articulate when we end up getting our minds off of the main thing. But that's not to say that we shouldn't care about Christian authors whatsoever, or that we shouldn't spend any time reading anything other than the Bible itself. There's a right way to go about it, and I have to speak both broadly and specifically on this episode because I want to deal with just some uh, foundational issues that we should think about. I'm not going to be able to go through the whole litmus test on 
what a person believes from A to Z and all of that and what denomination it's affiliated with, what Bible translation they're using. I mean, there are so many subcategories that we could think about when it comes to assessing who we're reading as a quote-unquote Christian author. But I want to start with this foundational principle that we find in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 13, verse number 7, says this, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Now, actually, you know what? Let me read verse 8, because verse 8 really does go along well with that. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Now, you might not think that those two verses, besides the fact that they occur right next to each other, uh, that they're maybe two separate thoughts, but I want to show you that really they, they come together uh, in, a, in a helpful way. Uh, but this one of the closing statements from the author of Hebrews here in chapter 13, he's encouraging his audience uh, to remember their leaders. And he gives uh, several different qualifications of what to think about when those leaders come to mind. And then he essentially says, if they pass that test, if they fit into this category that I'm talking about, then, he says, imitate their faith. And then he adds that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So what we see in those two verses, especially verse 7, is an encouragement for Christians to imitate the good things that they learn in conduct and content of other Christians. Now, this in the biblical sphere here uh, has to do with uh, the message of the gospel. Uh, This has to do with the apostolic teaching. It has to do with the right, tried and true doctrine of Jesus Christ that positive leaders have been sharing and teaching and proclaiming to God's people, and God's people are to accept that in a way, not only by lip service, but actually following after and modeling the life that these leaders lived in front of their eyes. Uh, We have this principle in the church when it comes to good elders and pastors and deacons and, and just godly men and women who ha- who God has raised up in the Christian context, uh, and he displays his goodness through those people, and they make a profound impact on those that they're around in a way that encourages the people that they're around to follow after their pursuit, their pursuit of Christ, not just trying to be like somebody else, but being like somebody else who's trying to be like Christ because it leads uh, this trajectory of living towards greater focus and and greater obedience to Jesus Christ. So these leaders are positive because they lead people people deeper in their walk to Christ and not away from Christ. So he gives that stipulation in verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, to remind us that Christ doesn't change, the message concerning Christ doesn't change, and therefore, there is a once-for-all Christian message, uh, this stewardship, this protection 
this care given towards this one true gospel and message that we have. Uh, these leaders are to be commended because they're per- protecting that message. They're not trying to change it. They're not trying to innovate it uh, to be culturally acceptable. They're not trying to tweak it in a way that no longer represents the Jesus who never changes. If Jesus never changes, his message never changes. And so one of the ways you know whether somebody is a faithful leader or not is by whether they've changed the message. Because if they've changed the message, then they're taking you away from Christ and not further towards him. So that principle uh, explicitly in Hebrews is, is talking about in the Christian context. But we can apply it to the way people teach that, specifically in the realm of books, how people are called Christian authors, and they're writing books on theology and doctrine and biblical studies and all of this that we want to get our hands on. I was going to say at places like Lifeway and other Christian bookstores, but let's be honest, we're getting our hands on them primarily uh, on Amazon.com because that's just where everybody buys everything nowadays. So the way that I want to tackle this is by essentially using this litmus test and this uh, bit of advice from the author of Hebrews as what we go by when we're trying to uh, decide what kind of Christian authors we're going to read. So there's a couple things that's in that uh, that I want to use and kind of tease out these uh, qualifiers in a a little bit more uh, productive way here. So the first thing we kind of already covered is that Somebody worthy of following, and let's apply it now specifically specifically to a Christian author. Somebody that's worth following is going to be somebody that's involved in and reputable in the church context. Now, there was once upon a time where this could go without being said, probably. But there are such a thing, sadly as dozens, hundreds, thousands of quote-unquote Christian authors that have no presence in the church, no commitment to the church, and really they have a less-than-faithful witness and track record in the church based on others' involvement and interaction with them. I think of uh, maybe somebody that tries to be a uh, quote-unquote Christian voice, uh, tries to be a a thought provoker. They have a presence maybe on YouTube. Maybe they have a podcast. They have a Buy My Best Selling Book available now spiel that you can find on their website that has the the domain name of their first and last name, and their books at stores that still exist, like Barnes & Noble and elsewhere. Uh, Almost every book they have is a giant, high-definition picture of themselves, smiling. Uh, And I'm being a little stereotypical here, but the point is, these people don't have a deep connection to a church. They're not committed to a group of believers. They are elevated high and above everyone else. Maybe they've started their own denomination. Maybe they've started their own church. And if you look at the leadership structure of that church, there's nobody that they're accountable to. They're at the top of the hierarchy. 
and they live and exist to promote their name and their brand. And that is the sense you get in every medium, whether it's podcast, whether it's a TV channel that they own, whether it's the books that they're publishing. It's all about them. Well, this fails the very first litmus test on what a leader worthy of imitating is, according to the Bible. Well, that means uh, that their books are less than worthy to spend the time reading. Remember, Solomon says, Ecclesiastes, we've got to be selective here. And if they fail this very first test, if things look fishy from the very outset, probably shouldn't waste your time. Uh, you might find a few uh, nuggets of gold, maybe it's fool's gold, uh, hidden in the trash heap of most of these books. Uh, but you don't have to dig through trash heaps to find gold. There's way better options, so probably just avoid it altogether. Now, I'm not saying you can't buy a book that has the picture of the author on the cover. I'm just saying maybe there's a little bit of of an ego issue uh, that's glaring you in the face. Uh, just take a look at the book, and it's right there. Okay, so first test right there. Second one is that they're teaching is focused on the Word of God. Now, again, it is sad that I have to say this, uh, but according to the Bible, a good leader, in this case, a good Christian author in that medium of communication that they've chosen to use and are selling to you, that the content of a Christian author in the Christian genre and category that they have been, they have said, this is what I'm writing. This is the category it belongs to. These are the people it's for. This is the content that it's going to promote and serve. That it should be centered on the Word of God. That's where we get Christianity from. That's where we find Christ and His message. That's where the gospel is preached. That's where the content is pulled from. Hebrews says that these leaders are those who spoke to you the Word of God. Now, can you say of a Christian author that you're interested in that you like them because you like the way they put things or you like them because simply of their style or their uh, manner of communication in general or that they have a lot of good illustrations, uh, they make you laugh, or is it that you appreciate them and you like them because they speak to you the Word of God? The Word of God is what they draw from. The Word of God is what they bring to you. The Word of God is what they promote in their writing. Now, Christians can talk about other things besides the Word of God. Maybe somebody who claims to be a Christian writes a book on finances or on uh, sports or on politics. Uh, you can read those things, but we're talking specifically here about books that claim to be Christian material that are given to you because they're promoting doctrine, they're pro promoting Christianity, allegedly. Again, it should go without saying, but it has to be said, that the content should be focused on the Word of God. You could find a lot of books, and really we could throw in sermons here as a whole other subtopic of this. Um, they say very little about the Word of God. 
it almost seems to be, as we've talked about on previous episodes, the way that the the Pledge of Allegiance or the National Anthem is performed before uh, some kind of gathering of people or before a sporting event. It's done at the very front, it's out of the way, and then you'd never think about it again for the whole rest of the duration. It shouldn't be that way in quote-unquote Christian writing. Christian authors should not be doing that, certainly not pastors. But again, the author of Hebrews says a leader is a good leader. A promoter of Christianity is legitimate if they are truly teaching and speaking to you the Word of God. And now the that was the second one. So now the third and final one that he mentions is this whole idea of their faith put on display. He says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the Word of God. He says, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Now, this doesn't automatically throw out contemporary authors, but it is true that we do have the benefit of time when it comes to reading people that are long dead and gone. Now, there's always the issue of people interpreting somebody's history and somebody's biography, maybe reinterpreting it, maybe giving a challenge to whether somebody uh, was worth their weight in gold or not. But generally speaking, when we read people that have passed on, hopefully into glory, uh, we have the benefit of looking at the totality of their life. Uh, If somebody starts out strong, vibrant, uh, provocative in the best sense, early on in their life, but then they make shipwreck of their faith later on, they denounce the faith altogether, Uh, what does that say? about them. Well, we can consider the outcome of their way of life and know right away probably shouldn't imitate their faith because they repudiated their faith later on in life. Uh, Think of somebody in our modern day like Rob Bell. Uh, Rob Bell has now moved on and totally dismissed himself from Christianity. He was at one point a spirituality guy for Oprah on the Oprah Oprah Winfrey network. Uh, But early early on, he was the pastor of a church, and he claimed to be a Christian. And as he started writing more and more books, uh, people started scratching their heads about what he had to say about sin. Uh, He had a very nuanced way about talking about homosexuality and any sexual sin, for that matter. And then eventually... Uh, He writes a book called Love Wins, where he denounces the doctrine of hell altogether. And so he promotes a sort of universalism. And then it didn't take very long after that that he uh, left his church altogether, uh, denounced his faith, at least in the historic Orthodox sense, and has moved on to still talking about God, quote-unquote, but it is something totally divorced from the Christian faith altogether. Now, he's still alive, Uh, Lord willing, uh, we do pray for somebody like that, that they repent and that they come back to uh, the biblical uh, God, that the the biblical understanding of all the things that he has distanced himself from and reinvented the wheel on. Uh, But at least for now, you can look at somebody like that and decide, I probably shouldn't imitate their faith. 
And I probably shouldn't spend time reading their books. Now, there's a time and place for evaluating and critiquing people on total opposite ends of the spectrum outside of the spectrum altogether. But in general, I'm talking about here people who promote themselves to be Christians, promote their books to you, and you decide whether or not you should read them as such. Uh, so Rob Bell is a contemporary example, but we have a long history of people in Christianity uh, who started out strong and then totally left the faith altogether. So this is a principle that we can follow both for those who are still alive, uh, but it's even more beneficial to utilize this for somebody that is dead and gone. I think about guys like the Reformers, um, even back way before the Reformers, uh, Augustine, uh, early church fathers. Uh, these are people who not only had a lot to write about, uh, but we have the witness of their entire lives, and we can see uh, whether they lived out this principle, whether they did stick to the Jesus Christ who is the same today, uh, yesterday, today, and forever. And, you know, that's why these names are so remarkable, and that's why we're still talking about them, uh, because, number one, we're trying to be biblical, um, but because they've left a lasting impact that was generally positive. Now, none of these men were perfect. None of these men, uh, because they were authors, they ceased to sin or anything like that. But they uh, were promoters of the faith from beginning to end. And they proved that that's what they were interested in. They weren't trying to build their own empires. They weren't uh, trying to introduce different subtleties and tamper with God's word. Uh, they were sticking to and holding fast to Jesus Christ. And so we can glean from them, and their writings especially, um, and benefit from that. We can imitate their faith and all of the positives, and we can learn from the negatives. And so this is really um, why this principle is so helpful uh, in thinking about uh, dead theologians, as it's called, as people like to say. Uh, but we can do the same thing today as well. We can do this with, with authors. We can at least look at what we know. We can at least look at what their reputation is. Uh, are they free from scandal? If there has been a scandal, how have they responded to it? Uh, are they uh, involved in all kinds of things like, like tax fraud and infidelity and uh, church discipline issues, shady deals that have gone on inside their Christian circles or have they left any kind of Christian circles and accountability? Like, these are things that we should think about. We can't play investigator and find out everything there is to know about somebody. And as soon as something happens, we shouldn't say, I'm never reading a book again, but we should use critical thinking here because uh, you should care about who you're listening to, especially when it's your choice. Uh, you should gravitate towards those who draw you to Christ. And that really leads me to just two examples that I wanted to give here. Um, and these are both historical examples. These do both fall into the uh, dead theologian category. Uh, but these two men, uh, and I, I'm representing them here by, by two uh, books. Well, really, this is uh, a one volume of three books, and then here's another book. Two men uh, that I find have really helped me in my life as a Christian, and there are a ton of Christians who have said the same uh, ever since the 17th century when these men were alive and well. So uh, the first one is John Owen. I've talked about him on the podcast before. 
The second one is John Bunyan, and I'm not just picking on the name John, but as it is, there have been a lot of good Johns throughout church history. John Owen, uh, this right here is probably one of the most profound volumes in my entire library. Uh, this is three classic works by John Owen brought together in one volume. The volume is called Overcoming Sin and Temptation. Uh, but the three books are called The Mortification of Sin in Believers, The Nature and Power of Temptation, and Indwelling Sin. Three books, Mortification of Sin, uh, The Nature and Power of Temptation, and Indwelling Sin. Now, the reason that those three books are so valuable to me is because they do one thing very well. They do, in content, in subject matter, they do what Hebrews 13, 7 says they should do, and that is they speak to me the Word of God. John Owen and all three of those books really is working with one passage of Scripture in each one of them. So each of those books are an explanation of a certain passage of Scripture. In The Mortification of Sin, John Owen is dealing with Romans chapter 8, where Paul tells us to mortify our sin, to put to death, to slay our sin. So he talks about what it means to kill sin. Uh, in The Nature and Power of Temptation, he's dealing with uh, the passion of Jesus Christ, where Jesus is in the garden and he is off praying. And he comes to Peter, James, and John, who are there in the garden, and he tells them to keep watch and pray uh, so that you don't enter into temptation. And then in the third book, An Indwelling Sin, he's dealing with Romans chapter 7, where he is helping us wrestle through that problem that Paul is talking about, that wrestling that all Christians deal with, uh, of this reality that we're Christians, we claim Christ, we're following him, but we still are not perfect. We have this sin that's still dwelling within us, and what do we do about it, and how do we deal with it? And so all three of those books are doing one thing very well. They're driving me back to Scripture. They're uh, casting new insights uh, upon my thinking that I haven't thought about prior to reading any of those three books. And this is what John Owen does. I mean, he's a Puritan, so this is what the Puritans do, right? They're dealing with a particular text of Scripture. They're teaching it to you. Uh, but you don't have to be a Puritan. You don't have to be a 17th century uh, theologian here to uh, do this. Uh, anybody in church history, anybody in our present day that's doing this kind of thing is worth our time to read. But this is just a prime example of John Owen and why I appreciate him as a Christian author, because he's driving me not away from Scripture to just hear what John Owen has to say, but he's promoting Scripture to me. He's teaching me the Word of God. And certainly, if you read any biography of him, you can say, uh, without any doubt, um, that we can consider the outcome of his way of life and imitate his faith as a result. The second uh, author here is a contemporary of John Owen, and he wrote the most significant work of literature ever next to the Bible, at least in terms of its popularity and widespread printing publication. That is The Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. Now, most people will agree this book is profound specifically because it is Bible from beginning to end. If you get the chance to grab a hold of an edition of this book uh, 
where the editors have included all of the footnotes of all of the different scripture passages that he's using in this allegory, it is remarkable. I mean, it is amazing. And he's writing this while in prison for the faith. So presumably, although we don't know this for 100%, presumably he's drawing most of these from memory, which says something profound about how glued to the Bible this man was in his life. Now, the interesting thing about these two men is that John Owen was a profound scholar. His knowledge of the biblical languages, his proficiency in them, his learnedness, his doctoral level education says a lot about him. John o- uh, John Bunyan, on the other hand, contemporary of John Owen, uh, was a man that didn't have any formal study. Now, this was a man who was uneducated besides just the general education. This is not a man that went to, as we would say today, seminary. He didn't have, as we would say today, a PhD or even a Master of Divinity. But, you know, the interesting thing about John Owen, the doctor of theology, who came across this contemporary, John Bunyan, said, I would relinquish all of my education if I could preach like that man. John Owen, part of the elite sophisticated class, if you will, uh, didn't scoff at this uneducated man, John Bunyan. He was profoundly impacted by him because he saw in John Bunyan a man who taught to him the Word of God. In fact, the reason why the Pilgrim's Progress was ever published in the first place was because John Owen pulled some strings and knew some people and helped make it a reality. And that is a fascinating thing, uh, that these two men on total opposite ends of the spectrum, at least by way of education, both were doing the same thing and both appreciated one another because they both saw that in one another they were working towards the same goal to teach God's word to God's people, and at any cost, really, for the two of them. So both of those guys are great examples. Uh, And again, this just two that just came off the top of my head. I just saw them on my bookshelf and grabbed both of these books because I thought that they both really embodied this idea that I'm trying to promote here. And as I said, we have to be general here. I can't go into all the ins and outs here. There's so many categories and subcategories of Christian literature. But I wanted to just give that as a reminder um, that when we're trying to be students of the Bible, it is okay to lean on others who have gone before us. It's okay to find those in our own circles uh, who encourage us, Uh, men in other denominations, men in our own denomination, authors who are promoting great work. You don't have to agree with everything that they promote in order to benefit from them. But we can avoid a whole lot of nonsense. We can avoid a whole lot of dead ends and downfalls if we stick to some of these general principles that the Bible gives us uh, implicitly, but principles that do help us understand how to deal with quote-unquote Christian authors. 
uh, whether of 10 centuries ago or whether uh, those who have just published a book yesterday. And this will help us because if we stick to this principle, then reading outside literature like that is actually going to enhance our reading of the Bible. It's going to want us to go to our Bibles, not run away from our Bibles and, and put them down. And so I just wanted to encourage you in that way. If you are wrestling through who you should read, or if you have uh, friends that uh, read certain people that might raise some red flags, instead of getting into a debate with them, maybe just mention this passage to them in Hebrews 13. Uh, because this is a great rule to live by, and it really does help us uh, make the best of uh, those that God has placed in our lives and has placed through uh, the pages of history. And it helps us to spot false teachers as well. Well, that concludes this episode on the Better Bible Reading Podcast. I hope it's been helpful to you, and I hope you take care until the next time we're together, and I will see you on another episode real soon.